Alrighty, so a uh, quick announcement to start us off this evening, um, and that is that next week church will be uh, virtual only. So I am going out of town um, later on this week. We'll be gone till next week. My uh, brother-in-law and sister-in-law, who are already married, are having wedding number two. Um, they had a pandemic wedding uh, last year, and it was just a very small uh, gathering of uh, just a few of their loved ones. Um, and so this weekend, they will be having their real wedding. Um, and so I will be able to check off yet another unique item on my um, pastoral uh, wedding checklist, and that is marrying people who are already married. So uh, pray for us as we are traveling, and tune in next week virtually. Don't come here. I mean, I guess you could come here, but no one else will be here. Uh, have you ever wondered what happens to amputated limbs? I don't know if you have ever asked that question. Uh, that is the kind of question that I ask as I am driving to work bored. Um, I've wondered before what happens when someone has a limb cut off or when someone has something surgically removed what happens to those body parts? Where do they go? Is there a second-hand market? Is there a dispensary? Is there a garbage dump for body parts? What, what happens? Uh, well, in the vast majority of cases when a limb is amputated, that limb is either given to a research facility, and that research facility will use it for teaching, testing, any other kind of uh, information gathering, or the limb is incinerated in a medical waste facility, so it's cremated. So in the vast majority of cases, when a limb is amputated, it is either used for some kind of research or it is uh, cremated. But did you also know that you can request to keep any part of your body that is amputated. You can request to own your body part post-amputation. As long as there's no communicable disease, there's no virus, there's no harmful bacteria, typically all that is required is to have the hospital sign a release form. And you can take it home uh, once it has been properly prepared, which takes several weeks. Um, there's a process where it is um, put in formaldehyde and, and, and all that. So uh, uh, I have read that usually if you ask to keep an amputated limb, they will look at you like you're crazy. Um, ask what you want to do with it. And then sometimes they'll tell you that that's not legal just simply because they don't want to go through the trouble of returning your amputated limb to you. Uh, who, after all, would want that? Well, some people have their reasons. So, for example, some uh, have religious significance tied to this, um, and, and they want to be buried with their amputated limb whenever they do pass, so that they have their entire body with them uh, together in the afterlife. So, for some, that's the reason why they would request this. But then there are other people who have different reasons, People like a woman named Christy Loyal. Christy Loyal wanted to keep her amputated limb as a uh, fun token of remembrance, we'll say. In 2011, she was diagnosed with cancer in her lower leg. And so she went to, uh, you know, figure out what the next step was. And they told her that in order to keep the, the cancer from spreading, they would need to amputate her foot. So as she's gathered uh, around, uh, as loved ones are gathered around her, expecting her to melt down, her immediate response was to look at the doctor and say, well, can I keep it when it's cut off? And they let her keep it. They thought that she was kidding, but prior to this, apparently she had already done her research. And so... Forms were signed, the foot was amputated, and then sent to a lab for preparation. It was cleaned, put in an airtight tube uh, with formaldehyde. And then after a month, Christy Loyal showed up at the hospital 
to get her leg and foot and uh, take it home. At that point, she then shipped it to a company called Skulls Unlimited. And this particular company specializes in cleaning and selling skeletal remains for animals and for humans. Um, Think a lab that has a full skeleton for teaching purposes. Who prepares that? Skulls Unlimited does. Um, Or think people who want to keep their amputated limbs. Skulls Unlimited does that too. And so they removed the leg from its formaldehyde. They removed most of the flesh uh, from the bones. Then they dried it. And then they take it and they put it in a tank with flesh-eating beetles. And the flesh-eating beetles will take care of all of the rest of the remaining flesh. Then they whiten the bones and and put everything back together. This is a process that took about four months and cost $650, just in case you needed to write that down for future reference. So after all of that, they send the foot back to Christy Loyal. And what does she do with her foot? Well, she takes it everywhere with her. She freaks people out with it. She has it in her house, and when people come in, she'll say to them, hey, that's my real foot over there. And she also has an Instagram account called One Foot Wander with over 500 posts of her foot being held by her or by others in various fun places all over the world. It is almost as if that foot has taken on a new life of its own. But if we ask ourselves the question, is that foot actually alive? The answer to that would be, of course not. Could this foot do anything by itself? No. And had Christie not asked for it, it quite likely would have been destroyed or put in a tube to be dissected and studied. The foot would never have been able to be resuscitated and released from the hospital as soon as it recovered. I mean, can you imagine seeing a foot by itself just jumping down the street? You'd freak out. You'd freak out even more if the foot hopped up to you and then said something like, you know, I used to be connected to a crazy lady, but now I'm on my own. That would never happen. That makes no sense to us. It's silly because we understand that an amputated foot separated from the body cannot survive on its own unless it is connected to its source of life. It can do nothing. It is useless. In the very same way, unless we are connected to and abiding in our source of life, Jesus Christ, we are lifeless bones. We are unable to do anything. We cannot on our own accomplish anything eternal or lasting or worth any kind of real significance. As it pertains to this study that we've been in on people who bear the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, outside of Christ, we cannot bear that fruit on our own. When we are not abiding in Christ, we're like an amputated foot with its own Instagram page. You may seem to have a life of your own, but really you're just bones. So, Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, we will be looking at verses 1 through 11. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, Jesus is speaking and says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does, not, that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So, let's set some context for where this passage takes place. This conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples takes place right after the Last Supper. In John chapter 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and then, uh, as soon as that event is over, he he prophesies that one of them is going to betray him. That, of course, is Judas. Judas leaves, and Jesus is left with the remaining disciples, continuing this conversation with them. At the end of chapter 14, the last verse in chapter 14, he says, rise, let us go from here. And so they rise from where they are in the upper room and they begin to make their way to eventually arriving in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the next place that indicates their location is in chapter 18. At the beginning of chapter 18, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So, uh, chapters 15, 16, and 17 are taking place en route to the Garden of Gethsemane. They've left the upper room, they're walking towards the garden, and they are talking on the way. And so, this is just my imagination, okay? This is just me trying to picture what this may have been like. Um, When I picture the passage that we have just read, I imagine it as if they're walking along and and they pass by a vineyard. And Jesus uses this vineyard as an illustration as they're talking. And again, that's just conjecture. Um, and, And he points out and he says, you see this vineyard, let me teach you something about myself by using this visual. He did this all throughout his ministry. So this takes place just before his arrest and just before his crucifixion. When they arrive to the garden, they're going to be there a short time before Jesus is arrested and taken into custody and ultimately uh, put to death. So in the next chapter, in chapter 16, he's going to tell them that this is about to happen. And he's going to say to them, in a little while longer, you will no longer see me because I am going to the Father. So... It's interesting to me that right before he leaves them, right before he tells them, I am going away, he tells them to abide in him. And that apart from him, they can do nothing. Now, a little, uh, uh, another little note about this passage that we have to understand is that some people have taken this passage the wrong way. And have taken this passage to mean that you can lose your salvation. That there's an either or that depends on you. Okay, where Jesus is saying, if you abide in me, you'll bear fruit. If you don't abide in me, you're going to be thrown into the fire. And so some people have taken this passage to mean, it's up to you. You got to keep abiding in Jesus or else you will lose your faith. But that is not what this chapter is talking about at all. This passage is not about keeping or losing your salvation. This passage is about how much fruit you will bear as a Christian. Again, remember, Jesus is speaking these words to his disciples after Judas has already left. And so he is now with the remaining disciples who are and will continue to be faithful to him. Judas provides an example of someone who did not abide in Jesus in the first place. Judas, in the motif used here, 
is a dead branch. Later on in the book of 1 John, John will uh, continue to talk about this idea where he says in 1 John that, that there are some who went out from us, that they were among us, but they were not of us. And so what is happening here is that there's a difference between those who are genuinely in Christ and those who are not. And though we might all be gathered together in the same physical place, not every one of these people is connected to the vine. And time will reveal which people they are. And so Jesus here talks about not losing or keeping your salvation based on your own effort. What Jesus is referring to here is how fruitful your life will be as a Christian. So there's one word that is the key word that we're going to focus on in this passage. And that word is the word abide. In the Greek, this is the word meno. And meno means to reside. It means to stay somewhere, to dwell there. It's a word that means set your house here. Don't leave. This is home base. This is where you live. Stay put. This is where you ought to be. Abide. Stay. Now this word abide is used ten times in ten verses. And then implied twice more. For example, where he says, abide in me and I in you, that even though he only uses the word abide there once, he's using the meaning of the word abide twice. You abide in me and I abide in you. So it is 12 times, 12 times in 10 verses, three times in verse four alone. And if if you're a student of the Bible, one of the things that you need to put into your normal repertoire for studying the Bible is that any time you get to a place where something is repeated over and over and over and over again, clearly there is something that is being driven home. It, this is never something you should skip over. When you see something happening over and over and over and over and over in a passage, God wants you to zero in on that thing. A similar example would be in John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer when Jesus is praying for the disciples and then Jesus is praying for everyone who will come to faith in him through the work of the disciples. And the word that he uses over and over and over is the word one. In, in, in other words, unity. When Jesus prays that we would be one as you and I are one, over and over and over he uses that. This is a signal to us that this is a key phrase, a key idea. And it is in the context of how we bear fruit. Now, I put this on the, uh, on the PowerPoint here uh, because I could not not put it there. Uh, for those of you that can't see it at home, it is a grizzly bear holding a pineapple. And it says, bear fruit. I don't know if you find that as funny as I do, but when I, when I was doing my commentary searches and I typed in bear fruit and that came up, I was like, oh my God, that's awesome. Uh, there was a shirt that I considered buying um, that had uh, a bear coming out of a banana and it said bear fruit on it. And I'm like, man, uh, these are shirts that I need to preach in. But uh, so we are to bear fruit. <laughs> I can't get over it. And so we're told to do this by abiding. Now, not only is this word repeated over and over, it's also nuanced in its usage. Because in these 12 times that that it's used, there are four different ways in which we abide. The first that's used, and, and the one that's repeated most often in this passage, is abiding in him. This is six times that it's repeated that we abide in him, where he says, for example, in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So Jesus says six times in these 12 verses, Abide in me. Abide in me. Then, a couple of other times, twice in these verses, he says, I abide in you. And we just read one of those. Abide in me and I in you. 
He abides in us. There is a two-way relationship here. That, that, that's not just a one-time event. Jesus is relationally abiding in us through the work of the Holy Spirit at all times. So we abide in him, he abides in us. The next way that's used in verse seven, in verse seven is that his word abides in us. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. So it's not just Jesus in the, in the presence of the Holy Spirit abiding in us. It is also his word that abides in us. He mentioned his word in, in verse 3 where he said, Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. So we abide in him, he abides in us, and specifically his word abides in us. And then there's also this usage in which he says that we abide in his love. Uh, He says in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And then it talks about how that's an emulation of the way that Christ abides in the love of the Father. Just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So this word abide is all over this passage. In the various ways that that we're told to abide and that we have Him abiding in us, this is how Jesus says we bear fruit. So if you're taking notes, here's point number one. Abiding is about where you live and what you love, not about how you labor. Abiding is about where you live and what you love, not about how you labor. The reason why I bring up this idea of labor is because human effort is the first place we go when we want something. If you want something, you are told in our culture, go and make it happen. You are the one responsible for your own future. And the way that we operate in our faith, sadly, is often no different. The way that we operate in in pursuing God is often based on human effort. And here's the thing, every other religion in the world, every other religion in the world is based upon this idea. Every relation on, uh, religion on earth is based on what you must do in order to appease whatever deity. How you must offer certain things to them. What you must sacrifice to them. What rituals you must perform and how you must perform them and when and doing it in the right way with the right attitude, with enough faith, with enough effort. Every other religion is based on human effort. What can you do to get to God? Christianity in its purest sense is the only religion, the only religion on earth that is based on on what God has done and, and what he is continuing to do in you and through you. It is based on his effort. It is based on his merit. It is based on his work and his work alone, not on ours. Verse four, he makes this very clear. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. Think about Christy Loyal's amputated foot. Without Christy Loyal doing what she did for that foot, it would have just been destroyed. Any sign of life that it has on Instagram is because she is doing that for and through that amputated foot. Um, I also read that she named the foot. Um, The foot's name is Achilles. 
so <laughs> it's taken on a new life with a new name. But Achilles can't do anything apart from Christy Loyal. Christy Loyal must be the one making that foot do what that foot is going to do. And that was true before and after the amputation. Because even when that foot was connected to her body, that foot was not deciding where to go. That foot was not powering her. It was not taking her places. She was directing that foot. It is about what Christ has done. It is about what Christ is continuing to do. It is about his power. And so he says, apart from me, you can't do anything. That, that doesn't, that it, he doesn't say, apart from me, you'll be okay, but not great. He doesn't say, apart from me, you'll, you'll only accomplish small things. He doesn't say, apart from me, you're going to put in a lot of effort and, and you might make some progress. No, he makes it very clear, apart from me, you can do nothing. That leaves no room for what we accomplish outside of him. It is not about what we do. It is about what he has done and what he continues to do. Nor is abiding, so it's not about our our labor, but nor is abiding about merely believing the right things. It's not about having a, a correct set of theological truths. It's not about performing the proper rituals. It's not about checking off the right spiritual boxes. And again, these are places that we often go. We often formulate religion and faith as if it is all about just believing the right set of facts. And when we think about who gets into heaven and who doesn't, Oftentimes, people boil it down to, well, Christianity teaches this about Jesus, so it's just about believing the right facts about Jesus. But that's not what it is. we, We can't boil it down to, as long as you believe this correct set of facts, congratulations, you're in. It's not about your labor, and it's not even really about your belief. It is about abiding. And abiding means, this is where I live this, this is where I get my everything from. This is my life source. This is where I'm plugged in heart and soul for all that I am and all that he is. I'm allowing him to abide in me. I don't just believe things about him. He abides in me. He lives in me. He is my source of life, my source of truth, my source of being. And so we have to understand that we, we, we cannot do this on our own strength. We, we cannot do this on our own effort. Again, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now we understand this, right? We, we get this fact. This is probably not new information to, to any of us. But how often do we try to prove ourselves to God? How often do we, do we come to God and we have this attitude of, I can do this, God. I, I, I've got this. Lord, I, I, know, that, I know that your word says this. I, I'm gonna do this. And, and we set about doing it. And we put all our effort into doing it. And what happens? We fall flat on our faces. We fail. We fall. And God's attitude toward us is not one of condemnation. God, God looks at us and says, look, I already know what, what you are. I already know what you're capable of. That's why I'm telling you flat out, you you can't do anything without me. I love the way that Psalm 103 puts it. In Psalm 103, in verses 13 and 14, it says this, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. We have to remind ourselves not only that we shouldn't have a higher view of ourselves than we ought. This reminds us that God has a proper view of us as well. That God doesn't have some expectation on us that we are going to live flawlessly, follow perfectly, give every effort in in 100% the way that it should be. 
God knows our frame, the psalmist says. He remembers that we are but dust, and so he shows compassion. And when we fall and we think, oh my gosh, I've ruined God's plan, God looks at us and pats us on the head and says, you're too small to ruin anything that I do. (laughs) Don't worry. I know exactly who you are, and I know exactly how this is going. You can't do anything without me. And so this is where we have to note that, that abiding in Christ is about abiding in his love. His love for us and our love for him. He says it in verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in my love, he says. That, that, that's, that's an invitation. That's an invitation that, that he's saying to us, come and rest in my love. Set up your house, set up your dwelling place, set up where you're gonna stay in my love for you. That is the greatest place that we could possibly live, in the love of God. There is no place safer. There is no place that gives us more security. There is no place that gives us more meaning. There is no place that fills up our entire being with hope and joy and peace more than the love of God in Jesus Christ. Remember again that this is just before Jesus walks to the cross. He says this knowing where he's about to go. So when he looks at his disciples and he says, abide in my love, we can read between the lines of him saying, I'm gonna show you why you can trust me when I say that. You're about to see in a few days how I'm gonna prove to you that my love is the safest place you could possibly be. I'm gonna lay my life down for you. You don't deserve it, but I love you. So it's not about how hard I work. It's about how deeply I am loved. How we live in that love. And living in love is what leads us to do the things that we're supposed to do. Living in love is what what makes us attentive to what Christ commands for us. Living in his love is what is going to cause us to obey the things that he's commanded us to do. It's going to give us the right attitude that, that we're not doing things in order to earn his favor. We're not doing things in order to get to him. We're just doing things because we love him and because he loves us. If you are someone who is happily married, as I am, you will know that you don't do things for your spouse because you have to. You, you don't do things for them because you're obligated to do it. And you don't have a grumbling attitude about it like, <laughs> you do this because you love that person. Your heart just wants to serve them. Your, your heart just wants to see them happy. Um, a really great example of this is my wife's stepdad, Nelson. Uh, some of you guys have met Nelson. Uh, Penny and Nelson have been here a number of times. And Nelson is one of the most loving people that I've ever met. He, he has a heart of gold and will serve selflessly, silently. Um, and one of the ways that he shows um, how he loves others is how he thoughtfully serves his wife and his family. He pays attention to what Penny likes. And he's, he's, it's almost like he's got a running list in his head. It's almost like he's watching to see what's going to make her happy, and then he jumps on that. And, and he does it fully and completely. If Penny says one time, man, I really like this particular protein bar. In a matter of a few days, there's going to be an Amazon Prime box that shows up at their house with a huge shipment of that particular protein bar because she likes it. So he's going to buy her a hundred of it. He's going to spoil her with that. Um, Another example that hits directly home for my family. Um, Have you have you guys ever heard of Stroop waffles? Anybody? Okay, a couple of you. Stroop waffles are these little, um, 
They're like breakfast desserts, I guess. It, it, it's like thin wafers, okay? So it's like a wafer with a little bit of caramel in between another wafer. Just a small little wafer sandwich. And the way that, that you're supposed to eat these things in the morning is that you, you pour yourself a hot cup of coffee, and then you set that waffle on top of the mug. And the steam rising from the hot coffee is going to melt the caramel in the waffle and give you this fun little, you know, pastry dessert for uh, breakfast. So, last time Penny and Nelson were at our house, Nelson catches wind of the fact that we like waffles, And that we went to Costco, and Costco was out. So I went to the grocery store, and uh, at Meyer they had this dinky little package of eight. <laughs> so I come home, and, and I'm like, all right, everybody gets one little package of eight. Nelson, after they went home, texts us and says, hey, I got waffles on the way for you. He lets us know that he has ordered boxes, okay, multiple boxes. There's 40 in a box, okay? And so a box is supposed to be coming to our house with, with 40, 40, and 40. That, that's, that's a lot of waffles. Then here's a twist, okay? That order gets lost in the mail, okay? It does not arrive. And, and days are going by, a week's gone by, the waffles never come. So Nelson's like, don't worry about it. They gave me a refund. I'll order you another package. That box shows up to our door. Now we have three stacks of 40, okay? Let me remind you, there are four people in our house. Well, five, but there are four people who can eat solid food, okay? Now, after we have received this shipment of three boxes of 40... The first order that got lost in the mail shows up at our door. So now we have two giant shipments of waffles, All because we said, hey, we like waffles," And Nelson said, I love you. Let me pour out waffles on you. And now we are swimming in waffles. This is how it is when we are abiding in the love of God. When we're abiding in the love of Jesus. It, it's not just a little bit. We don't get an eight pack. We're swimming in the waffle love of Jesus. I, those are words I never thought I would say. We're swimming in the love of Jesus in its abundance. He pours it out on us. He is not a God who's up in heaven waiting for us to behave the right way before he loves us. He just extravagantly loves us. And in return, we are not people who serve him because we have to. We are not people who are obligated to just do things because that's what we're supposed to do. We extravagantly love him back and we do the things that the world thinks are absolutely nuts because we love him. And we don't care how crazy it looks. We love him. So if we are abiding in Christ's love, we're we're doing two things. First, we are living in the fact that everything he's done for us is out of love not necessity or obligation. And second, we're responding back to him in love, not obligation, not ritual, not checking a religious box because we're supposed to. We are paying attention to Jesus like Nelson pays attention to Penny and having the attitude, how can I serve you? How can I serve you, Jesus? I'm paying attention to to what you say. I'm paying attention to to how you are. I'm paying attention to your scriptures. And I'm going, Lord, how do I I love you? How how do I serve you? How do I I return love back to you? How how do I follow after you obediently? How do I do this? Thankfully, Christ gives us some guidance on how to do this. Because this is a relationship of love. He tells us clearly how to. To abide in him. And that's important. Because I don't want us to get the wrong idea. I don't want us to get the idea that since this is not about what we do for God, that we get to be the pirates who don't do anything. That's not what it means. It's it's easy to connect the wrong dots. We might see the first dot, which says Christianity is not about what you do, but it's about what Christ has done. 
and we might connect that to the wrong second dot, which would be, oh, cool, I don't have to do anything then. But that's not correct. And as we've seen already, that's not very loving either. So, what is it that we have to do? This is point number two. Abiding is about receiving, respecting, and repeating. Abiding is about receiving, respecting, and repeating. There are certain commands that are given that tell us how exactly to abide in this passage. And there's three of them that are, that are given to us in these verses. The first is to live in the word. The second is to keep his commandments. And the third is to live in love. So how do we do this? We live in the word, we keep his commandments, and we live in love. In two directions, and, and we're going we're gonna to break this down. We live in his love for us, which is for ourselves, and then we love others. So it is a, uh, it is a horizontal and a vertical. I did that backwards. <laughs> horizontal and vertical. So uh, the first is living in the word. Okay, so let's look at verse 3, verse 7, and verse 11. Verse 3, he says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. What you are in, the, the, the purity of life, the, the righteousness that you have, is as a result of the word that I have spoken to you. Verse 7, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Okay, so his word is abiding in us. We have a choice there. Is his word abiding in us, or is it going in one ear and out the other? We have a choice what abides in us. And then verse 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So, we live in the word, or as the, the point uh, that, that I uh, described earlier, receive. We receive the word, okay? We receive the word. The word of God has to be our ultimate authority in life. Now, I'll say here as a disclaimer, I know that it might seem a bit cliche for me to stand up here and say yet again, that we need to be in the word of God, okay? That might make me sound like a broken record because all the time I just keep saying over and over and over, Christians, be in the word. Christians, be in the word. My, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, be in the word. But there's a reason why we have to repeat that to ourselves because Christ repeats it to us over and over and over. Christ said, the spirit is going to come and he is going to be my messenger who will remind you of all the words that I have spoken. The Spirit indwells in us because we have to have that. We need the Spirit to say, remember the word. Remember the word. Remember the word. Direct us back to the word. We have to be people of the word. Surveys show increasingly that most Americans and even worse, far worse, most self-professed Christians, those who refer to themselves as Christians, do not regard the Bible as their ultimate authority. They're increasingly being influenced by culture, by personal opinion, by cultural beliefs, and whatever else. Further, far too many professed Christians fail to understand what the Bible says in the first place because far too few of them actually read it. If you just Google Christian Bible literacy, you will find study after study which shows how we as Christians spend very little time in the Word. I read a statistic earlier today that said just this past year during the pandemic, surveys showed a 5% decrease among Christians in reading the Bible regularly. And I'm like, man, if there's ever been a time that we could read the Bible, it's when we're all locked in our houses with nothing to do. 
But unfortunately, other things took precedent. And even when we do read the Bible, many times we just read snippets. And then we don't even obey those snippets. A survey conducted in 2019, so this is current research, by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University found that American adults today increasingly adopt a salvation-can-be-earned perspective. So, increasingly, the number of adults that believe you earn your own salvation. A plurality of adults, 48%, believe that if a person is generally good or does enough good things during their life, they will earn a place in heaven. Only one-third of adults, 35%, disagree with that statement. Now, that's just the, the, the American culture. What the American culture believes is bad enough. Turning the lens then on the church, self-professed Christians. This survey showed that a majority of self-professed Christians at 52%, so it's a slight majority, but a majority nonetheless, also accept a works-oriented means to God's acceptance. of self-professed Christians believe that they earn their own place in heaven. Even those associated with churches whose official doctrine says eternal salvation comes from only embracing Jesus Christ as Savior. Almost half of all adults associated with Pentecostal, 46%, mainline Protestant, 44%, and evangelical, 41%, churches, as well as nearly two-thirds of Catholics, 70%, hold this view. That's crazy. That's nuts. 52% of self-professed Christians say that salvation can be earned? Where? Show that to me. It's because in large part, people who are self-professed Christians aren't reading the Bible. Now listen, it is incredibly important to go to church. You will never not hear me say that. It's incredibly important to listen to your pastor preaching. You will never not hear me say that either. But it is incredibly important that you read the word on your own every day. You study the word. You learn the word. We're in this all together, okay? Your biblical literacy is on you. And you're going to believe things that are not true if you are not in the word of God. You have to receive the word all the time. Because if someone else says something that does not line up with the word, you will know, uh, that's not what I read. You can talk to that believer, that professed Christian, and say, show me that in the Bible. Here, let me show you what, let me show you what I was reading this week. This doesn't say that it's earned. This, this says that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Uh, where, where's... What, what you're coming from, where, where, where is that in here? Uh, well, don't, don't be a person who doesn't know the word. We have to read the word. We have to meditate on the word, study, and then most importantly, obey. Obey the word in spite of the cost, whatever it cost. And it's in that word, obey, And we come to the forefront next in the passage in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So, we have looked now at receiving the word and now respecting the word. Receiving and respecting Jesus says that the way that we show him love is by obeying his commandments. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, he looks out and very bluntly says, Why do you call me Lord, but don't do what I say? Doesn't mince words. Why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? Literally, in the original language, the word Lord 
means Lord. It, it's owner. You own me. I do whatever you tell me. So he says, why do you call me master? Why do you call me one who is in charge? Why do you call me one who directs my life and then you don't let me direct your life? Or uh, if we stayed in the same area here in John in chapter 14, look at verses 15 through 24. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live in that day. You will know that I am in the father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, (laughs) I love that little parenthetical statement. Uh, The good one, Judas, the good one, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourselves to us uh, and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So very clearly, very obviously, very simply, Jesus says, if you love me, do what I say. Now, we have to place that within the context of where we find it, in the context that we've just talked about of living in love. Because if we separate this from love, If we separate this from him loving us and us loving him, we separate it out of that, it sounds like manipulation, right? If we just looked at it on its face, this could be a phrase used to control, to manipulate, to coerce. If you love me, do what I say. But those words spoken in a coercive way are not spoken by someone who loves. They're spoken by someone who wants to take advantage. Manipulative words are used by someone who is trying to use someone else for their own gain. But again, let's remember when and who these words are spoken by. By Jesus as he is walking to the cross as he is about to lay his life down for them. It's not about what he's getting from them. He's about to give them everything. He's about to give them his very life. And he's saying, guys, I love you. And and if you love me, do what I'm telling you to do because I'm trying to help you. I'm telling you this because I love you. I'm telling you this because this is what's best for you. I say the same thing to my kids. Guys, if you love me, if you trust me, just obey me. Will you just trust your dad, for goodness sake? Eli will ask a question over and over and over. And sometimes I'm like, dude, just trust me, okay? I'm your dad, and I want what's best for you. I'm not telling you this because I'm just trying to to get you away from me. I'm telling you this because it's true. If you just trust me, it's going to be for your good, dude. I've got your best interest at heart. This is how Jesus talks to us. If you love me, you understand that I love you. We understand that we love each other. And we understand that I know a whole lot more than you do. And so when I'm telling you something, it's based on a knowledge that I have that you don't have. Trust me. If you love me, do what I'm telling you to do. Don't call me Lord and then not do what I say. Call me Lord if you understand this is a God who loves me that's worth following. Jesus is saying, am I worth following? Let me show you that I'm worth following. Let me show you. Now do you understand? I love you this much. Please do what I say for your own good because that's why I'm telling you to do this. Finally, we have repeating. So we have receiving, we have respecting, we have repeating. We have to take these things and put them into practice in the way that we love others. For this, 
uh, look at verses 12 through 17 of John chapter 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Love each other the way that I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. Again, the timing. He's about to do that. He's literally on his way to do that. So he says, guys, eyes on me, pay attention. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. I'm about to show you the greatest love that there ever has been when I lay down my life for a bunch of jerks who don't deserve it. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. I wish that I had the time right now to preach another hour (laughs) about loving one another. That when the world sees us more than anything else, they should come away with the impression, boy, these are really loving people. In fact, Jesus himself said, they will know that you are my disciples by what? Your love. They will know that you are my disciples by your love. When you love each other the way that I love you. Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't already done in a thousandfold more. Jesus lays his life down for us, and so he says, lay your lives down for each other. That doesn't have to be taken literally necessarily. Sometime it might, but on an everyday basis, we are to lay ourselves down for our fellow man. Kingdom over everything. What is best for those around me, no matter what it costs? So we receive, we respect, we repeat. This is how we abide in Christ. And what does this lead to? Point number three, and I'll I'll close with this. Abiding makes certain we bear fruit. I wish that I had thought ahead and every time I say bear fruit, I should have gone, rawr! (laughs) Maybe next time. Abiding makes certain we bear fruit. Look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then in verse 8, by this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. When we abide in Christ, when it's not about what I've done or what I do, but it's about what he's done, what he does, when I'm living in his love, when I'm living in the word, when I'm obeying the word, when I'm loving others, Jesus guarantees us, you will be fruitful people. You will glorify my Father in the fruit that you bear in your life. Now, he notes that this isn't always going to be a smooth process. There's going to be a steep learning curve to this. In fact, he tells us in verse 2 that sometimes he is going to have to painfully cut us down in order that we might be even more fruitful. Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So when we bear fruit, when we bear the fruit of the Spirit, what does God do? Prune us. 
doesn't exactly seem like the most fun reward at the time, right? We might go, I'm bearing fruit. How about not cut me with shears? But what he does for us is in love. What he does for us is what is best for us. And so sometimes when we are bearing the fruit of the Spirit as we ought, he allows us to go through these times of pruning that are painful and confusing and cut us down and strip away things that ought not be there in order that next time there might be even more fruit. And that next time it it might be even more fruit. And then after that, it'll be even more fruit until the branches are weighed down with all that he has produced in us. It might take a long time. It might be a painful process. But it is a guarantee. Regardless of what you can see in front of you, regardless of how confusing it might be, regardless of how long it takes, If you abide in Jesus, you will bear fruit. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you, Father, for showing us what it means to abide in Christ. And Lord, I pray this for myself. I pray this for our congregation. God, for the people that are gathered here and the people that are watching online, the people that are listening on the podcast at some point later on. God, I pray that you would encourage us. Encourage us and equip us to live out the gospel every single day. Make us fruitful people. God, I pray for any person under the sound of my voice who has never been truly connected to the vine. God, I pray for anyone who might be listening who maybe they have believed the right set of facts about you. Maybe they have acknowledged the proper truths about you. Perhaps they have even checked off the checklist so many of the right things that we're called to. But at the root, have never abided in Jesus. God, I pray that tonight you would call those people to yourself. I pray that tonight they would come to a place where they say, I want to live in the love of Jesus. I want to be connected to him. I want to live in him as my source of everything. I want to follow after him, not because I'm supposed to, but because I get to, because it's a joy. And God, I pray that if if you are calling people to yourself in that way, that you would lead them to the steps to do so. That they would reach out to me or to one of our our leaders here at church and that, that we would be able to walk with them to commit themselves to Jesus. God, I pray for for those of us who are in this church who have been laboring and not seeing the fruit that maybe we want to see. Lord, remind us that you're the one who makes it grow. It's up to you how much fruit grows. If we're in the middle of a pruning season, Lord, I pray that we would receive that pruning with joy. As painful as it might be, knowing that you are pruning us in order to bear more fruit later on in life. Help us to trust you, to be obedient as we follow after you, and to worship you in the midst of that. Lord, let us be a church that is filled with fruitful people, and that everyone around us might taste the sweetness of that fruit. God, as we close in this last song of worship, I pray that you would call our hearts to yourself, that you would help us to surrender whatever it is that we need to to surrender that you convict us in any place that we need conviction, that you would encourage us in any place that we need encouragement. Call us deeper into following after you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, we will close in worship.